Early this morning, before sunrise, thousands of students from Oxford University will have gathered on the high street in Oxford to celebrate May Day. At sunrise, the choir of Magdalen College would have begun singing in Latin from the roof of the college tower, relayed by loudspeaker to the students below. And following this, dozens of students will have jumped off of Magdalen Bridge into the cold waters of the Charwell River below. Don't worry, our baptismal tank has been heated today. But why do these Oxford students get up before dawn to listen to a choir sing in Latin? Tradition. Oxford is full of traditions, like at Merton College, where on the nights that the clocks change, the students march in full academic dress around the college backwards. Why? In order to rescue the universe, they say. They need to stabilize the space-time continuum. These are Oxford students. They know that walking around the college backwards in full academic dress does not stabilize the space-time continuum, and yet they do it. Why? Tradition. Oxford is full of them, like the requirement to wear your full academic dress, known by the Latin words sub fusc to all your exams, and the requirement that you must have your mortarboard with you, or you will not be allowed to enter the exam, but don't you dare put it on your head or they will throw you out. And all of this, in spite of the fact that following your final exam, your friends will gather outside the exam schools to participate in a ceremony known as trashing, where they spray you with sparkling wine, cover you in silly string, and pelt you with eggs. <laughs> Why? Tradition. Tradition is a part of the DNA of Oxford University. Many of the things. That they do make little or no sense to modern students, but they do them anyway. Why? Because if you didn't do them, it wouldn't be Oxford. It's what makes Oxford University Oxford University. My name's Ellis, and I'm one of the pastors here at Chapel Hill. I want to welcome you to this baptism Sunday, whether you're joining us in person or you're joining us online. Last week we began a new sermon series called DNA. We are talking about what makes Chapel Hill Chapel Hill, the inherent qualities that set us apart and make us unique. And we believe that there are nine of them, grouped into three groups of three. And last week, pastors Mark and Julie began with the quality that is perhaps the most distinctive, and that is we are egalitarian. We ordain both men and women to roles of leadership. And this week, we move on to the second quality in that first set of three. Last week, we heard we're egalitarian. Next week, we're going to hear that we're spirit-filled. But today, we are reformed. And I would say that these three, reformed, spirit-filled, and egalitarian are an incredibly unique combination. You won't find many churches that hold all three of these together. And I count myself incredibly blessed to serve at a church that does. And today I'm going to talk about what it means when we say we are reformed. Now, reformed refers to a particular type of theology that is rooted in a particular time in history. So before we get to the theology, a brief history lesson. In the 16th century, about 500 years ago, the church in Western Europe was governed by the church in Rome. 
And there were many who were deeply disturbed at the practices of the Roman church. And those who took action were called reformers. They wanted to reform the church. And what is now known as Reformed theology was one branch of that movement, stemming from the French reformer, John Calvin. He passed on his theology and his beard to a Scottish man named John Knox, who returned to his homeland of Scotland where he birthed Scottish Presbyterianism. Now, through a number of political struggles, Presbyterianism spread briefly from Scotland to England, where in the mid-17th century, the British government called the Westminster Assembly to put pen to paper and write down the reformed theology of these Presbyterians in a document we know as the Westminster Confession of Faith. This statement is the best statement of Reformed theology as we have it. In fact, if you were here last week, you would have seen elders and deacons being ordained and taking vows. And one of those vows that they took was that they believed the Westminster Confession to represent the true teaching of the Bible. And if you want to study Reformed theology, there's no better place to start than reading the Westminster Confession. In fact, we've linked to it in our weekly guide if you want to do that. So today... I can't go into the whole Westminster Confession. In fact, that would be a whole year sermon series. But I'm going to draw out three points from the Confession that I think are particularly distinctive, especially when compared to other Protestant churches today. And they are three specific views on these topics. Scripture, sovereignty, and sacraments. And we're going to look at each one in turn. So first, Scripture. Everyone say Scripture. When I was in high school, sometimes the teacher would get called away from the class at short notice, and, and there wouldn't be time to schedule a substitute. And the teacher would write on the whiteboard some instructions for uh, us students to complete during the time that the teacher was away. Now, how we as scrotty teenage boys responded to the words on the whiteboard depended entirely on the perceived authority of that teacher. If that teacher had won our respect over the years, then we knew that we had to do every single thing that was written on that whiteboard or there would be hell to pay. But if the teacher had not quite won our respect, then we knew the next 35 minutes were a gift given to us to do with however we wished. The perceived authority of the teacher determined the weight of the words that were written on the whiteboard. We believe that the Bible the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, the Bible, we believe, is God's word to us. And since God is God, and by definition, he has the ultimate authority, we believe these words in this book command the highest honor and respect. The words of the Bible are to have the highest authority in our lives, above that of any other book or any other person's words. They are to be treasured, since we believe they contain everything necessary for salvation. Paul put it this way in his second letter to Timothy. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every single word of this book has been breathed out by God. And it contains everything we need to grow and mature in our faith in Jesus. 
And for us at Chapel Hill, this has a couple of significant implications. One implication to us corporately and one implication to us individually. First, corporately. This means that when we gather in worship, we believe that the reading and preaching of God's word must hold the central place in our worship services. Singing, praying, giving, partaking of the sacraments like we're going to do today and other elements of our services, they are important, they are valuable, but without the reading and preaching of God's word, we have not fulfilled our duty of worship. The words of this book take the highest place in our corporate gatherings. So that's the corporate implication. There's also an individual implication to this. If, if God's word is the highest authority, then it should be the highest authority in our individual lives. And that means we should be reading it, and we should be seeking to understand it. And, and not just on a Sunday when we gather in worship, but every single day of the week. Because if we do, we will be shaped and formed into the complete people that God has destined for us to be. And I know many of us have a practice of daily reading scripture and reflecting upon it. But if you don't, can I encourage you to try it? And can I recommend a resource to do that? The Bible in One Year app. You can download this app on your phone. You can download it right now if you want. It's got a nice red uh, app logo. Spend 20 minutes a day reading God's word or, or listening even. You can listen to it and hearing some commentary on it. Rather than spending 20 minutes a day doom scrolling through whatever your chosen poison is on your phone, social media, the news, ESPN. And a little tip, I find it best to read the Bible at the same time every single day. A bit like brushing your teeth, because then it becomes a routine and a habit. And if you form this habit, it will change your life. That's what God's Word does. And that's one part of what it means when we say we are reformed. So, three distinct beliefs that make us reform. First, scripture. Second, sovereignty. Everyone say sovereignty. Recently, my six-year-old son was invited to move to a different school in the, in the fall to participate in a program that isn't available at his current school. So we shared this news with him, and we asked him, what do you want to do? I mean, this is a big decision for, for a six-year-old. And so he said, wisely, I, I'd like to take some time to think it over. A few days later, we were walking together, and I was talking to him about this decision that needed to be made. And as we discussed, I realized that he thought he was the one who was going to have to make the decision about which school he would go to next year. Now, I didn't want to crush him, but I did want to correct this miscommunication. And so I shared with him that ultimately, the school didn't want to know where he wanted to go next year. The school wanted to know where his mom and I wanted him to go next year. What he wanted, that was important to us. I, like, I want to know what you want, but ultimately, the school's not going to change anything if, if you say you want to go here or there. They're going to listen to us. In this situation, the decision of the parents, not the child, was what carried weight. Now, in many ways, this interaction between myself and my son is a picture 
of what we believe about God's sovereignty in Reformed theology. We humans are like my son, and God is our father. Just like my son in this situation, what we want is important to our heavenly father, but ultimately, our heavenly father is the one who's in control of the situation. He's sovereign, and we are not. Now, this view of God as sovereign or in control over all things is central to what it means when we say we are reformed. Reformed theology is ultimately God-centered rather than human-centered. And this plays out most noticeably in how we believe we are saved. We believe that God is the one who saves us from the very beginning of the process until the very end of the process of salvation. Romans 8.28 is a favorite Bible verse of many people I know. And the verses that follow that verse help us understand what the implications of God's sovereignty are. This is what they say. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We believe that the Bible teaches that God is the one in control of our salvation from the very beginning of the process to the very end of the process. God sovereignly saves Before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose us. And he sent his son Jesus to die for us because we couldn't atone for our sin by ourselves. And then he sent his spirit to give us new life because we were unable to choose that new life for ourselves. And that same spirit will keep us in that salvation until the end when we are resurrected in our new bodies to eternal life with Christ. God is the one who saves us from beginning to end. As Paul writes in these verses we just read, he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and he has and he will glorify us. Now, just like in the situation with my son, it's the father's decision that matters. Yes, he he wants to know our heart and our desires, but ultimately, he's the one who makes the decision. And do you know what? That's incredibly comforting. You know, my son was so worried about what decision to make regarding his schooling. I could tell he was feeling incredible pressure, so much so, he didn't want to tell me what he wanted, I think for fear of making the wrong decision. But as soon as I told him that the decision lied in his parents' hands, I watched him relax, and he immediately shared what he wanted to do. You know, it's the same with us and God. If it all rides on me and my decision, that's a huge amount of pressure. I make bad decisions all the time. But if it rests on our perfect heavenly father's choice, we can relax. He's a good father. 
who has proven himself faithful time and time again. And if he is in control, we don't need to stress out. We can trust him to make the best decision for us. Now, to make this a little bit more personal, I I might encourage you the next time you feel anxiety or pressure, remind yourself that God is in control. He who created the world and before that had chosen you, he who formed you in your mother's womb, he who sent his only son to die for you, he who breathed his spirit into you to give you new life, he will, who will continue to form you and shape you into the image of his son and, and he who will resurrect you to new life at the end, he is in control, not you. So when you feel that twinge of anxiety in your heart, look upward and remember that he who called you is faithful. So to summarize, so far, we are reformed, which means we have a particular view of first, scripture, second, sovereignty, and third, sacraments. Everyone say sacraments. Two years ago, I was a part of a team that worked with a design agency to redesign our Chapel Hill logo. We recognized that our logo was significant because it pointed to something greater than itself. It pointed to the reality of who we are at Chapel Hill. As such, we wanted a logo that conveyed the things that were important to us. And after many, many iterations, we love the result. The central design of the logo is a Celtic cross. That's a cross with a circle behind it on a hillside, just like the cross that's on the top of our original chapel on a hill at the other end of the building. And we edited that Celtic cross ever so slightly to reveal our initials. You can see a C right there in the middle, and there's an H made with the central line and the right-hand line. And we chose colors that speak to our location in Gig Harbor, where we are rooted. Blue, because of the water that surrounds us. And we picked three different tones of blue, because we wanted to recognize the Trinitarian nature of our faith, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that logo, is just a bunch of pixels on a screen, but to us, it signifies something much greater. Sacraments are the same. They are simple, outward actions that point to a greater inward reality. And how these outward actions interact with this inward reality is an important part of what it means to be reformed. We believe that there is a very real spiritual connection between the sacraments and the realities they signify. Now, you may be saying sacraments. I don't even know what these are. Well, simply, they are baptism and communion. Two simple actions that Jesus commanded his followers to do, which we believe signify a much more significant reality, just like our simple Chapel Hill logo signifies a much more significant reality. First, let's talk about communion or the Lord's Supper, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are following Jesus' command to do this in remembrance of him. But we believe that this is not only something we do in memory of Jesus. We believe that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, that he was speaking to a deeper spiritual reality that takes place when we partake of the bread and the juice. We don't believe that the bread and the juice physically become Christ's body and Christ's blood, but we do believe that in the partaking of them, Christ is spiritually present to us in a very real way. The meal points to the reality of his presence with us. And through us partaking in that meal, we find spiritual nourishment. That's communion. And honestly, today I think our reform beliefs about communion probably a little less controversial than our beliefs about the other sacrament, baptism. Baptism is also an outward action that points to a greater inward reality. Baptism is the the washing of water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it signifies that the person being baptized has been grafted in to Christ and is entitled to receive all the benefits of his promises to us. And not only are those who believe grafted into Christ and entitled to receive all those benefits, but also their children. As Peter said in his sermon on that very first Pentecost when the Spirit fell, he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When my first child, Evelyn, was born, she immediately became a full part of our family. She was given our family name, White. She was welcomed into our family home. And she was given all the rights and privileges that come along with being a part of our family, which include, but were not limited to, waking us up at all hours of the night. She was truly a part of our family from the very moment she came out of the womb. We didn't wait for her to make a decision about whether she was a part of our family or not. She was in from that moment. And she could still choose to to walk away from it, but we would always welcome her back into our family. We believe the same thing about children of believers and the family of God. Children of believers are just as much a part of the church as my newborn baby Evelyn was a part of my family. Children of believers are entitled to receive all the same benefits and promises as believers themselves, even if they don't yet have the capacity to understand or acknowledge that reality. And that's why we baptize babies. We believe baptism signifies that a person is a part of God's family And our kids are just as much a part of God's family as their believing parents. 
One final thing on sacraments. The sacraments don't save you. Baptism won't save you. Taking communion won't save you. Only Jesus can save you through your faith in him. As Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Sacraments don't save you. Jesus does. Nonetheless, if you love Jesus, why wouldn't you get baptized? Why wouldn't you have your children baptized? If you've been baptized, why wouldn't you take communion? These are means by which God communicates to us the reality of our salvation, which is in Christ alone. So we are reformed. And that means we have a particular view of first, scripture, second, sovereignty, and third, sacraments. And this morning, we're gonna practice that sacrament of baptism. We've had many people register. We're gonna be here until at least, I think, one (laughs) o'clock. But there still might be some people in this room who need to respond to that call to be baptized. If you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in him and you've never been baptized, I invite you to come to the waters of baptism this morning. During this next song, head out the door, around the corner, go speak to one of our elders. They've got a few questions they wanna ask you and then we would love on profession of your faith to baptize you. And if you... If you're a believer and you have a child who's never been baptized, the same applies to you. Go around the corner, speak to one of our elders, and then go grab your child, and we would love to baptize them this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. You did not remain distant. You showed us who you were, and most principally, you showed us who you were in the person of your son, Jesus to whom your word points. We thank you for the gift of salvation to us. You chose us. You have saved us in your son, Jesus. Breathed your spirit into us. Given us new life. You will keep us safe until the end when we'll be reunited with you, our Heavenly Father. Pray we would rest in that salvation this morning, knowing it depends on you, not on us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the sacraments, those outward simple actions that point to the inward reality of what's taken place in our lives. And this morning, For those who are ready to be baptized, we pray that you would be preparing them. Pray for the parents who are bringing them forward that you would continue to lead and guide them. And if there are those here who have not yet made that decision, but you are prompting them to make that decision to get baptized today, would you stir their hearts and give them courage that they may go and speak to an elder now and that we may celebrate the new life that is theirs in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you need to speak to an elder, now's the time. No failure or mistake. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. You make
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. I know nothing has been wasted.